0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, so this this um, talk is going to be on the differences between a biblical worldview and a and a Marxist worldview. Okay, um, I'm going to make the argument that Marxism is uh, maybe the most influential worldview out there today. Um, it's very influential. Okay. And we'll get into it. All right. And the reason why Marxism has gained such ground in the church is because so much of the church has already come under a humanistic worldview rather than a biblical one. We started talking about that a little bit earlier, right? For most people, Christianity is about how God can bless me in my life. Right. But that is a humanistic worldview. That's not a biblical worldview from a biblical worldview. The main story remembers about Jesus, and it it's the, really the story of what's happening in Jesus. If we get closer to Jesus, we become characters in this great narrative. But if we don't get close to Jesus, then we are the side characters in the story that get killed off in the second act, right? That's kind of how this works, right? And that is offensive to a humanistic worldview, right? To a humanistic worldview, what are you talking about? Like, this is about me and my life and, you know, God loves me. And what we've done is we have taken so much of the Bible and made it so humanistic. And I understand why. Because humanism, if we tailor the gospel around a humanistic message, it'll find more receptivity. Right? People will be open to it. Right? Like if you if you I don't know about you, I got taught to preach the gospel through the four spiritual laws, right? God loves you and has a purpose for your life. Right? Now, is that true? Yes. The problem is that's a very humanistic message, but I understand why they use it cuz it works. People want to hear about God how God loves them and wants to bless their life and give them their calling and their destiny and all these things they they long for, right? Um And that's why if you start talking about judgment, then people are like, wait a second. You know, judgment turns people off because all of a sudden the whole message about judgment is this idea that God has a standard that you may not meet up to, right? And that's offensive to a humanistic mindset, okay? So the biblical worldview is really not well understood. Most Christians are only familiar with the gospel that's really about individual salvation from sin, and they lack understanding about the bigger picture of God's kingdom right? It's actually the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming, right? And that is what the Bible is about. Okay. So I just explained a lot of the biblical worldview in the last session. So I'm going to skip over a lot of this, but you guys can look at my little graphic that I drew myself. If you can't tell. All right. And this is the biblical paradigm that there's heaven and there's these rulers in heaven and they rule over parts of the earth, right? Sections of the earth, okay? So this is how the Bible sees the reality of the earth, okay? Um, And then this is a lot of review. And what I I want to do is talk about the biblical paradigm of oppression here. Because when we get into Marxism, Marxism is all about oppression. So you have to understand how the Bible thinks about oppression, okay? So the biblical paradigm is that all people are primarily oppressed by spiritual powers, Right, I mentioned that in the last session that, from the Bible's perspective, you are a slave. Who you? Who are you a slave to? Some prince, right? Some prince of heaven. Okay. Now, if you become a Christian, then you get translated out of that kingdom and you become a co-heir with Christ. Why? Because Jesus is such an amazing king that He's willing to share rulership in His, in his kingdom with you. But that's crazy. None of the other kingdoms are like that, right? Okay, so I want to look at, I want to back this up with the Bible, right? Um, Ephesians 2, I read in the last section, but look at this passage from Galatians 4. Galatians 4 says, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? okay? This is what Paul is telling the believers in the Galatian church, right? And if you're familiar with the Galatian church at all, this is Paul's first, um, it was his first missionary journey. He led a lot of these believers, including Timothy, to the Lord. And then what started to happen is other teachers started coming in and teaching stuff that was different. And Paul was concerned that they were falling back into these legalistic rituals and stuff like that that would put them under slavery to these other powers again. Does that make sense? okay? This is the paradigm that Paul has, okay? So from the biblical perspective, oppression is primarily heaven's oppression on the earth, okay? Right? And we have to define oppression, okay? The way it works in the kingdom of God is that when you have a righteous ruler, the ruler uses his power to serve those that he rules. So what happens— Everyone becomes really blessed because the righteous ruler is using his power to serve them, okay? An unrighteous ruler is somebody who uses his power, right, to get served, all right? So you use your authority to use people so that you can get what you want out of them, okay? By the way, you're running into this all the time, all right? Because this is why children become rebellious, right? When children start to believe that their parents are giving them commands for their benefit and not for the child's benefit, then they stop trusting their authorities. Does that make sense? Okay, and that happens a lot, right? When you have abusive parents, when you have parents who are selfish and all this kind of stuff, what happens? Children grow up not respecting or trusting authority. If you've had perfect righteous authority, then guess what? You trust authority a lot, right? If you're if you're raised with that, But almost nobody is these days, right? All of our parents are kind of, you know, they have sinful aspects. And so there's all this where we struggle to trust authority in certain areas, right? Including the Lord. That's another, that's just another sermon. Okay. Now, the biblical perspective is that people are delivered from slavery and oppression when they convert to Christianity, right? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So again, because Jesus is the only ruler who's willing to share his power and his kingdom with his subjects, right? our kingdom is totally unlike the other kingdoms. That's why when Christ is seated on the divine council, right, we share in his glory with him. Does that make sense? That's why the Bible, from the Bible's perspective, we're seated with him. Because when he increases, we increase too because he shares his kingdom with us. Okay? For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. So here's, here's what the Bible is getting at. It's saying even if you're a slave, you know, script this is this is very you know if you want to offend people you can quote this passage right right if you want to offend you can you can quote them from 1 Peter right where peter tells slaves obey your masters not just when they're good to you but even when they're when they're harsh right when they're cruel why because if you obey them out of reverence to the lord then you will receive from the lord right a reward does that make sense so from paul's perspective you can be a slave on earth and be free. Why? Because the Lord is going to reward you for every act of faith that you show, right? And in fact, every Christian is is still a slave to Christ. So whether you're a slave to another person, it doesn't really matter because you can't do what you want to do in any case, right? Like none of us have the freedom to do what we want to do. We're all slaves because we voluntarily make ourselves slaves to Christ, okay? So Paul's expectation here is, yeah, hey, if you can get free, he says do it, right? If you're a slave and you're offered your freedom, go ahead and do it. But the attitude is like, but it's not that big of a deal, right? It's not that big of a deal. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Even Even if you stay a slave, you're still free. Why? Because now you're in Christ. Now you belong to a kingdom that can never be shaken. Now you're going to be recompensed for all the ways that you've been wronged and you responded in faith and obedience and forgiveness. Does this make sense? Okay? This is gonna be very important when we get into Marxism, because Marxism is gonna argue the complete opposite of this. All right? And secondly, let's understand worldly privilege from the perspective of the Bible. From the Bible's perspective, worldly privilege is garbage. All right? It's complete trash, right? If you are a rich person, a rich ruler on the earth, guess what? God's not impressed by that at all, right? He doesn't consider you highly privileged. In fact, look at how the Bible says this. This is from Philippians. This is, this is, Paul, this is um, Paul speaking of his privilege, right? He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now let me pause. It's hard for us to understand this because these are what, this is what Jews boasted in, all right? If you were a Jew in Paul's day, The question was, who is a true Jew, right? Because if you have some like, you know, other blood in there, I don't know if you're a real Jew, you know, but Paul's credentials are perfect, right? I'm descended from the tribe of Benjamin, right? I have, and not only according to my blood, but according to my religious training, I was of the most strict sect of Judaism because they used to argue in those days about who's a true Jew, right? If you weren't, if you didn't follow all the law and keep the tithe of the cumin, all that, Were you really a Jew? Will you really have a place in the age to come? That was the kind of legalistic debate they would have. And he says, by those measures, I was faultless. And then he goes on to say this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, so what Paul is saying is that I used to value all of these worldly privileges, right? These things were once valuable to me, but now I consider them garbage, right? None of those things are worth anything. I tell this to people when I preach at Korean churches. I usually try and get this line in. I always tell them, like, going to Harvard is garbage. Right? I always tell them that because they all want to go to Harvard, you know? And I tell them, like, no, it's garbage. I actually talked to a student who got into Harvard. And by the way, if you're Asian and you get into Harvard, you are the man. All right, like you killed it, right? Because it is like doubly, it's like triply hard for an Asian to get into Harvard, all right? But I told him, don't go to Harvard. Right? I told him like, look, this is an idol in your life. I can see it. And look, but if you give it up and you sacrifice it to the Lord, then you'll grow in your faith in the Lord, right? Because uh, you know why I said that? Because I really do think Harvard is garbage. I know he studied hard for that. I know he's a smart guy, but those things don't impress God, Okay. Like on the day of judgment, he can't be like, but God, I got in Harvard. God's not gonna be like, oh my gosh, you got into Harvard. <laughs> right? We better give we better make this guy a ruler, right? Like, that is not the criteria and the basis by which God rewards things. Does that make sense? And you've and that and that's Paul's point. The world operates with its own sense of what is valuable and privilege, but those values are foreign to us in the kingdom of God. Okay. So what I'm getting at with all of this, is if you are a black Christian, are you oppressed? If you think you are oppressed, you are a Marxist. You are not a Christian, okay? Does this make sense? You can be persecuted. Persecuted means that you're suffering for the sake of righteousness, right? You're suffering because you're doing what's right. People hate what's right, and so they, they, they treat you badly because of it. You can suffer persecution, and all of us believers, we should rejoice if we suffer persecution, because then we're counted worthy of reward, right? But if your paradigm is, I'm a Christian and I'm black, so I'm oppressed, I that is not a biblical worldview. That is not a biblical worldview. Does this make sense? Okay? All right. Now I went in the last session to a little bit of the humanist worldview. I'm going to flesh it out just a little bit more, right We already talked about right there's no being greater than man. there's no ultimate right and wrong. man creates his own purpose, lives for his own pleasure right All of this is humanism right and this is the mantra of the West right now, right Do what makes you happy if it makes you happy, right love is love right? Why do you care if other people love people right Should people should be able to love however and whoever they want right all this kind of stuff. This is all part of a humanistic worldview, okay? But what a lot of believers don't understand is that Christian humanism is a real thing. A lot of people are more humanistic than they are Christian. And this is hard for Christians to understand because they don't understand, because their their basis is, oh, but if they believe in Jesus and they believe these facts about Jesus, then they're a believer. But that is not what the Bible says, okay? The Bible isn't concerned about what facts you believe. In fact, the Bible says, Even the devil believes these facts, right? Even demons believe these things, right? It's not belief in the facts that matters. It's the allegiance demonstrated by obedience, right? That's why Paul says multiple times, right? He says, do not be deceived. This is Ephesians uh, 4, or 5, something like that, right? Do not be deceived. Do you have a question? Yep. Okay. Now, what I'm getting at here is that I love my kids, all right? I love my kids, but... If they become rebellious, I will kick them out of the house, all right? And I have to define what rebelliousness is, okay? You can be in Christ and commit sin. All of us believe that, right? But there is a place where you're rebellious, right? And that's the place where scripture says that you don't belong to him. And I always make that distinction between practicing and um, struggling with sin, okay? So if you're struggling with sin, that's everybody, everybody, every Christian who's a real Christian is struggling with sin, right? Meaning, I know this is wrong. I'm trying not to do it. I'm fighting it. But sometimes I fall into sin and I fall into temptation, right? And then what do I do? I repent, okay? And when I repent, God forgives me. Now, this is really important. When you repent, God forgives you. There's a lot of teaching that says you don't need to repent, right? Or you just repent once, right? You repent once when you get saved and then You're good to go, right? And I got to say, that is not biblical. That is not biblical. No, he forgives you when you repent, and he's faithful to forgive you even if you repent many times for the same sin, okay? In fact, the standard that Jesus gives us is that if your brother sins against you seven times in the same day, you have to forgive your brother each of those times. Like, that's a pretty crazy standard of forgiveness, right seven times the same sin in the same day but god gives us that standard because i believe that's the standard that he uses for us okay but this is important you do have to repent of sin and what i'm getting at is scripture will warn against those who practice sin okay and it makes a distinction between those who practice sin and those who struggle with sin all right all of us struggle with sin practicing sin is something different that means i'm not trying I, i'm not trying to stop this okay? I don't, I, and your mind shifts to, this is not, is this really sin? And then this is not sin. Does that make sense? And just be real, that's where a lot of people are, okay? So if you're living with your girlfriend, all right, if you're living with your boyfriend, I'm going to tell you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the scripture says, all right? No fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it says. And if you're living with them, you're not struggling with it, <laughs> You're living with them, all right? That's not struggling against sin, all right? Now, that being said, I've dealt with a lot of people who've struggled really seriously with a lot of sins. And they're struggling with it, but they're repenting, and they're falling into it again, and they're repenting. And for those people, my message is grace and mercy, all right? Grace and mercy, all right? Thank God, he forgives us again and again and again. But when we shift our mind and we start to say to ourselves, this is not, is this really wrong? right, that's when it becomes really dangerous, right? Because that's when we can start to, and the scripture warns us about that, right? Hebrews chapter three, brothers and sisters, as long as it is today, encourage one another so that your hearts may not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? It's gonna warn us that our hearts can become hardened towards this, and then what we can do is we become rebellious towards the Lord, Alright? and that's the part at which I believe we are cut off. All right, and you're gonna you're gonna see that warning again and again in the scriptures. Does that make sense? And does that answer your question? Okay, good. All right, Christian humanism. So the point here is that a lot of people think they're Christian because they believe these facts, but they but. Scripture is going to say again and again, our beliefs, our faith, is evidenced by our actions, okay? Our actions show what our uh, belief is. And here's some of the beliefs that a lot of Christian humanists will have. right? God exists to help and love people. that's a That's a big one, right? So they will minimize the idea of hell, the idea of it, the idea of eternal judgment. right? You'll go to some churches where they will not talk about judgment at all, right? And I got to say, that's because of the humanist influence there. What's the biblical worldview? That's BW. All right? God will eternally condemn those who reject his call to repentance. All right? This is a strong warning. It's the biggest warning in the Bible. All right? Number two, Christianity exists to make people happy. A lot of times that gets preached all the time in churches. Right? God wants you to be happy. Now, is there truth there? Of course. I just shared an entire testimony last session about God telling me he wanted me to be happy. Okay? It's absolutely true he wants me to be happy. But that is not his primary purpose in my life. Okay? His primary purpose is not that I would be happy. Happiness is a side product. Okay? It's a side product. If you idolize happiness, you won't get there. All right? All right? That's why scripture says, if anybody would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He who wants to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The whole idea of Christianity is that we have to trust God, that he will lead us to happiness, even if we have to deny ourselves and what our fleshly desires are now. Does that make sense? Three Scripture is primarily a man-made document that is inspired, but not authoritative messages from God. It should be interpreted according to the morality of the day. Okay? You're going to see this a lot in churches where they go, well, look... Paul didn't know about homosexuality. He didn't talk about homosexuality. He didn't really understand homosexuality like we understand it today. Eh, right? No, he understood homosexuality. It was like really big in Roman culture, actually, okay? Like, but you're going to see a lot of this type of thing happen, all right, where people start to say they, they decrease the authority of Scripture, all right? They say Scripture has lots of errors, lots of mistakes, and the point is it doesn't need to be our authority. And I just want to say, look, Jesus is the one who upheld the authority of Scripture, Right? He said, "I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them." All right, and I know there's a big debate. Let me just, all right, l- let me answer that debate real quick because a lot of people are going to say, like, "Yeah, but didn't he basically abolish the law?" And the answer is, no, he did not abolish the law. All right, the law never applied to Gentiles. Okay, you and I are Gentiles, right? Any Jews in here? All right? God bless you if you're a Jew. All right, if you're a Jew, you're still obligated to follow the law of Moses. If you're a Jew, let me say that again: you're still obligated to follow the law of Moses. Okay, the law of Moses is still in effect for Jewish believers, right? Why? Because Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to uphold them. He said, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass away from the law. And he said, those who minimize, right, the law will be called least in the kingdom, but those who uphold the law will be called great in the kingdom. Does this make sense? The way that gets taught a lot in churches is the the law is Old Testament, and we don't need to worry about any of that stuff anymore. And I just got to say, that is such a misunderstanding of Scripture. I know why people say that. I totally get it. It's a misunderstanding. And what it does is it fits in with this humanistic narrative, right? I've heard John John 8, right? The woman caught in adultery. I think it's John 8. I've heard that message so many times. People come and say, but what about the woman caught in adultery, right? She was caught in adultery, and Jesus is like, oh, the law's done with now, right? Now we just love people, right? If any of you have never sinned, you cast the first stone. I just want to say lovingly, I think that's a terrible interpretation of that passage. I think a terrible interpretation of that passage. This idea that Jesus just abolished the entire law of Moses, okay? I've heard that thing used to justify every kind of sin, right? And why sin's okay, okay? And I, I shouldn't spend like 30 minutes... Breaking that whole thing down is going to take forever, okay? I just want to say, I think that's a bad interpretation, and there are many other passages in Scripture that uphold the standards of morality of the church, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, right, where a man is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and and Paul says, Paul says, are you proud that you showed him grace? Right, Shouldn't you have put him out of the church? Right? He says, I, I've handed this man over to Satan, and what he's rebuking them for is being too gracious towards this man. Why? Because this man is not struggling with sin. This man is practicing sin. Do you understand the difference there? There's a huge difference. And it's a huge difference in the way when I'm discipling people. I can tell when somebody is open and they're trying to live righteously, but they're struggling. I'm like, Great job, right? That's what I tell those students, right? Amazing, you're doing awesome, right? Keep it up. And then I could tell students, and there's no conviction, there's no real effort to walk in righteousness and holiness. And I tell them, hey, you're probably not in the kingdom. And they go, what? (laughs) I've been going to church my whole life, right? And I have to warn them and say, no, you've believed these facts your whole life, but you've never had a radical encounter with God where you've actually surrendered your life to him. And I see no fruit of real righteousness in your life, right? That's a hard message to have with people especially if they're Christian humanists. But can I tell you, that's the state of many people that grow up in the church today. They never have that born-again encounter, right? They never have that encounter where they're convicted of sin and they surrender their life. But that's what baptism is about. Okay, sorry, I'm like preaching off topic a little bit. But baptism is not about you getting dunked under the water, right? It's about the truth that the ritual represents, that you have made the decision to die to yourself, to die to your old life, and now you live for the purposes of Christ, right? This, that's what baptism represents. You can get dunked a million times. If you don't have the life-changing encounter, you're not part of the kingdom, right? And the worst thing that I can see as as a Christian leader is that I would have a season with somebody and I and I would feel like they don't have a real relationship with God, but they feel like they do, and they go to judgment, and they're shocked on the day of judgment. Right? My heart is like, man, I would much rather shock them now. Right? Okay, sorry, that was that was a tangent. Was there a question? Absolutely, very important. Thanks for pointing that out. Right. Um, the other part about that is that people use that to say that Jesus, he got rid of the law. Right. And like, cause the, 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 proper punishment, if you're caught in adultery like that, you're to be stoned, right? According to the law of Moses, right? Just in brief, I think the reason why Jesus did not do that is because he was following the law, right? Those who witness the adultery are to cast the first stone, right? That is in the law of Moses. If you witness the adultery, then you cast the first stone. This just applies to Jewish people, right? And, oh God, it's going to take too long to go into all that. All right. We have to stop. All right, because I do want to get into Marxism. We have to get into Marxism. Any other quick questions before we jump into Marxism? Yes, exactly. So he's speaking to Gentile believers. Gentile believers who are being pressured that if they don't get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, then they have no inheritance in the kingdom. And Paul's whole point is that Gentile believers are not obligated to follow the law. But he takes Timothy, and he has Timothy circumcised. Why? Because Timothy is a Jew, right? Timothy needed to be circumcised because he was a Jew. Okay, and there's there's a lot of theology to that. I would love to walk through you with that because it took me a while to get to this position when I was in seminary studying all this stuff. Okay, so I totally understand the hesitation, the frustration there. All right, let's get into Marxism. Marxism is a type of humanism. Okay, it is a type of humanism. All right, it is a worldview that sees everything through a lens of oppression. Okay? From Marxist worldview, we live in a world of warring human tribes, okay? So behold my amazing graphic, all right? Here we have one small tribe oppressing, the red arrows are oppression, oppressing all of these other tribes, right? Because this is the strong tribe, and they rule over the weak tribes, okay? All right, so the Marxist view worldview is inherently humanistic. There is no heavenly realm. They don't believe in heavenly realm, okay? Power and wealth are achieved primarily by oppressing and exploiting other tribes. Okay? So the way you become powerful is you exploit others. All right? Now, I'm going to point out how this differs from the biblical worldview. Okay? But you're going to hear a lot of Marxist thought today. By the way, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. That's not me accusing them, that's the founders saying openly, we are trained Marxists. Okay? A lot of people don't understand what. Black Lives Matter has to do with Marxism, okay? And that's because Marxist thought has gone through a number of evolutions in the past hundred years, all right? So we're going to have to talk through those, but I'm primarily going to save that for the talks tomorrow, because we're going to get specifically into race and into sexuality, okay? That'll be tomorrow's talks, okay? Today, my focus is I really want to identify what does the Bible say about these underlying beliefs, Okay, I want to make it clear how the biblical view differs from the Marxist worldview. Okay, so the Marxists say that the powerful are rich because they oppress the weak, but the, biblical, but the Bible says the powerful and the rich are tempted to oppress the weak, but true wealth will eventually come to the righteous okay, true wealth will eventually come to the righteous, and there's lots of scriptures that speak about this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich, okay, this is the whole idea, like, if you work hard, you will be blessed, something like that, right, you will get richer, okay, by the way, that idea is very offensive in much of academia today, Right? If you say people are poor because they're lazy, oh man, you are in for a world of hurt. Right, If you mention that at any university today. right? But there's a lot of truth in that. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason people are poor, because they're lazy, because I'm poor. <laughs> right? I hope it's not because I'm lazy. But there is a principle of wisdom there, right? that wealth follows righteousness. Okay? And that principle of wisdom is all over the Bible. All right. But that is going to conflict heavily with Marxist teaching. Number two, the weak should band together to take power. So the, the whole Marxist prescription is that, hey, most of you guys are oppressed. And what you need to do is you need to band together. You need to unite with other oppressed peoples and you need to take power from the oppressors. Okay. That is Marxist doctrine 101. All right. What does the Bible say? The righteous should be patient and wait for the Lord's judgment. All right? James 1.10, but the one who is rich should exult in his low position because he will pass away like a flower of the field. All right? The biblical worldview is such that in this life, we are going to be despised. We are going to be mistreated. We are not going to be treated as our righteousness deserves in this life. That is the biblical worldview. And so we should wait for the Lord's vindication. He will vindicate us on the day of judgment. He will say, this one did what was right in my sight, and now he will be glorified. Okay? That is the biblical worldview. Psalm 37, do not fret. Because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass, they will soon wither; like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn. Your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. That's pretty clear, right? What you're going to find is that the Marxist pressure is going to be, we have got to you know, we've got to put an end to the oppression now, and you're going to hear a lot of anxiety. They're going to try and stoke anxiety and worry and hatred and strife and all these kinds of things. And the biblical prescription is this. Yes, oppression is going on in the world, okay? It's not that oppression doesn't exist, but it's that we but we have a righteous judge who rules over all things. Okay? And he is going to set things right in his time. It doesn't mean that I don't have a right, a a role to play something like that, but this is why as believers, we never worry, right? Even if it seems like our nation is turning away from the Lord, we will not give in to worry, right? Does this make sense? Okay. The paradigm difference here. Okay. All right. In the Marxist paradigm, equality is what's preached. Hey, we want equality. By the way, that's not an honest preaching, but that is what is preached oftentimes, okay? But the Bible never says that equality is the goal, okay? The Bible never says that equality is the goal, all right? People are judged by their deeds and have different outcomes based on them, okay? So, for example, you're going to hear a lot in Marxist thought this idea, like, you know, why why should Native Americans make X percent less than white people? Something like that, Okay. And there's going to be an argument that is inherently unfair. There's something inherently unfair there, all right? But from the Bible's perspective, it's not unfair, okay? Meaning God judges nations, right? God judges nations. A good example is when we talk about the conquest of the Native Americans, right? From a, from a humanistic worldview, like the white man is like the devil, right? The white man came in, killed all those all those Native Americans, and like, this is a sin that can never be atoned for, all right? This is like the Marxist perspective, okay? Um, but if we're Christian, we believe that the Lord is sovereign, all right? What that term means is that God rules over the nations and that what he does is he exalts righteous nations and he tears down wicked ones, okay? Now, this is very offensive, right? This is very offensive to Marxists, right? This idea that a nation is suffering because of their wickedness. Moo. you wanna get, shouted down, you just say stuff like that, right, at Berkeley, right, you will get shouted down, but from the biblical worldview, this is what God says, that I raise up the righteous, right, and I tear down the wicked, all right, and what we're going to see is that many of the sufferings that come upon people are because of sin, all right, again, this is very offensive to the Marxist worldview, because the whole Marxist worldview is that suffering comes on people because of oppressors, right? But the Bible is going to claim that suffering comes on people primarily because of their own sin, okay? It does, there is an aspect of oppression, what we call persecution, but it's primarily an issue of sin. Does this make sense, okay? All right, now to understand Marxism, I'm going to take you through a little bit of the the train of thought here. So classic Marxism, this is Karl Marx, you know, back in the 19th century, and what he's railing about, he's railing about capitalists, Right, And these capitalists are the owners of the factories because we're in the middle of the you know, industrial revolution. And what's happening? These factory workers or factory owners are getting rich. Why? Because all these people are working long hours. And who's getting rich? The factory owners. So do the factory workers hate the factory owners? No, they don't. And Marx is like, why don't you hate those guys who are oppressing you? And in Marx's day, if you were a German factory worker, you know who you hated? You hated the French factory worker, right? Because the French factory worker was an evil dog, right? And you were a proud German and vice versa, all right? Marx lived in an era of nationalism, right? It was about national allegiance, okay? And his whole argument was that why would a German factory worker hate a French factory worker? They're the same class. They're the same tribe, right? The one that they should really hate is the factory owner right he's the one that is oppressing them exploiting their labor all this kind of stuff and so what marx preached is that the factory workers of the world should unite together and they should take the factories right they should take ownership of all of these things and then every person would contribute according to their ability and they would receive according to their need this is the communist utopia ideal okay <laughs> now what you guys have to understand is that communism was the most influential ideology of the 20th century, okay? It was so influential that it took over many different countries, okay? It's hard for us because we live in freedom and we didn't go through the Cold War, right? But the reality is during the Cold War, our main battle as Americans was to contain communism because it was so influential and it was so potent in all the nations of the world. And if we didn't actively stop the spread of communism, it would have kept spreading like crazy, That's why we went to Vietnam to fight, so that communism wouldn't spread all over Vietnam. That's why we went to Korea to fight. That's the reason me and you are here, bro. Otherwise, we'd be in North Korea, like, suffering, right? Like, because America decided that communism was evil, and their official foreign policy was containment. We're going to contain, right, the virus of communism. OK, and then what happened was the the Soviet Union basically killed itself trying to keep up with our economic engine and the system collapsed. So since, you know, 89, that was 1989. Since then, we haven't had a serious existential threat in the world. Right. If you grew up before then, you heard about the evil Soviets, right, and the evil communists. Now you don't hear anything about that. Right. So my point is, all, you have to understand this is a very influential the- ideology. Okay, very influential all over the world. All right. And by the way, it caused massive suffering and devastation in every nation that embraced these communist ideals. They suffered for it big time. Yes. Communism is a specific, um, a specific form of Marxism. Marxism is the underlining ideology that you see the world as as warring human tribes and one tribe oppressing other tribes. Okay, it's the worldview. Communism is the specific prescription for that worldview. Because we live in this Marxist world, what we need to do is we need to band together and take over the state right, and have a communist one-world government. Okay? Now, uh, socialism is, is similar, all right? but it's, it's a little bit different in ways that will just take too long to like, explain all of them. All right? What we need to understand is that Marxist thought has gone through an evolution. All right. So what happened was that the universities started taking Marxist thought. And by the way, Marxist thought always came out of the universities. All right? But in the 20th century, that thought really started to be evolved. And the whole idea was simply this. Well, aren't there more lines of oppression? Right? Yes, capitalists oppress workers. But aren't there other ways that people are oppressed? Right? Don't white people oppress black people? Don't men oppress women? Right? Don't straight people oppress gay people? right? And so this is the theory of intersectionality, right? The idea that there's many avenues of oppression and that you have an identity that's made up of all these group identities. You're not just a worker, you're a worker, you're an Asian worker, straight male, right? And, and all of these form your identity. And if, if you're oppressed in all of those identities, right? Well, then, you know, if you're a black transgender female worker, well, then you're at like the top of the oppression or the bottom of the oppression pyramid, right? You're the most oppressed out of all peoples, right? And this is all modern Marxist thought. Does this make sense? Like in the 20th century, it was mostly capitalists versus workers, but in the 21st century, it's all different kinds of oppression, okay? And, but the worldview is essentially the same okay? And so now, you know, and especially the race one was very influential in an American context, right? Because we feel bad about slavery, right? White people feel bad about slavery. So it creates this natural place where, yeah, there was great oppression here. Yeah, there is oppression. And that is the most potent one. But obviously, I'm sure you guys have all heard all of these various lines of oppression that I just talked about okay? All of this is part of the Marxist worldview, okay? This is the way a Marxist will see the world, okay? They won't see it in other lines, like you're a Christian primarily, and you're a Catholic, and you're a Buddhist, right? That might be how we see it more, right? Because we see them as different spiritual kingdoms from a biblical worldview. But from a Marxist perspective, no, they're looking at lines of oppression, and these are the ones that have been kind of codified in our society, The prescription is still the same. All of these oppressed people should band together and seize power. They should take power. Okay? And the result is increasing tension in the nation along all of these lines. Okay? So the idea here is that there's white privilege. White people should admit and fight against their own oppressiveness, right? And you, what you need to understand is that what Marxists do is they're very adept at playing with language. So, for example, All right, Martin Luther King Jr., if you're familiar with his I Have a Dream speech, right? He said, I have a dream that one day my children will grow up, right? And they won't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, right? That's how we understand racism traditionally. Can I tell you, that is not what modern Marxists mean by the term racist, okay? A modern Marxist does not define racism in the same way that you and I would probably define racism. Okay. And that's because a Marxist sees primarily through systems of oppression. All right. Meaning, if you are upholding a system of oppression, right, then you are a racist. That's how you get the crazy thing where you have like Larry Elder, who's a black, you know, radio talk show host running for governor of California, and he's being accused of being a white supremacist all over the place. Right. How does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because he's upholding an ideology that causes systemic oppression. Does that make sense? So even though he's technically black, right, the reality is he's a white supremacist. Yes. I mean, it's a real thing, and it's all over the place, okay? I know we don't get as much of it here, but look, man, I live my whole life in California, right, Tiffany? We get a lot of this kind of stuff in California, right? Um, but this is Marxist thought, all right? That's why if you're like Candace Owens, right, who works for Daily Wire, but she's like conservative, right, a, Marx, a black Marxist, like BLM, does not feel solidarity with Candace Owens, right? Even though she's black, right? Why? Because she's preaching against their ideology. So the idea here is that if you preach against the ideology, who are the racists? It's the ones who preach against the ideology. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if you don't have hatred in your heart, right? Like the traditional understanding of racism is that if you're white, right? You hate black people or something like that because you're a racist. That's how I define racism, Right? That is not how Marxists define racism, okay? To a Marxist, it doesn't matter whether you have hatred in your heart, right? It's are you contributing to the system of oppression or not? If you're contributing to the system of oppression, then you are a racist, right? Even if you personally love black people and all this kind of stuff. Does that make sense? That's why Trump is like the ultimate you know, racist, right? It doesn't matter that he has black friends. He keeps saying things that go against the Marxist narrative, ergo, he's a racist. Does this make sense? okay. So you have to understand language in this way. Marxists use language very powerfully. So for example, in the Christian context, we hear a lot of things about like social justice, okay? I highly recommend that Christians do not use the term social justice. Social justice is a Marxist term, okay? You won't find social justice, you won't find that term in the Bible. It doesn't exist. It's a modern term that has been created to Give a Marxist understanding of the world. So, for example, in traditional justice, all right, Sam, if you lie to somebody, right, God should give you a spanking. I don't know, right? That's traditional justice, all right? A better one. If you murder somebody, you should go to jail. How's that, okay? All right? That's traditional justice. Sam did something wrong, therefore, he should go to jail, okay? That is not what Marxists mean when they're talking about justice, Okay? Marxist justice is not concerned with individual issues of morality. They're they're concerned with systems of oppression, okay? So social justice means group justice, okay? So what you have, if blacks are going to college at a lower rate than whites, then what exists is a system of injustice. We now have a system of injustice. So if a white person scores 1,500 on their SAT and they don't get into Harvard and a black person scores 1,000 on the SAT, and they do get in Harvard, that is justice. Why? Because it's concerned with writing the overall system, not with any individual's individual problem with justice. Does this make sense? Yes. 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 It's a great question. Okay? Now, first of all, oppression, again, the biblical worldview is that oppression is primarily done through spiritual powers. Okay. When people are oppressed from my worldview, it's because there's demons that are oppressing them. Okay. That's how I see it. So from my perspective, I, the primary thing that I want is to set people free from spiritual oppression. And I want to cast out demons and destroy principalities influence over people so that people can be free and be in Christ. Right. That's my biblical worldview. Alright? Now, is there human oppression? Absolutely. And it happens all the time all over the place. Alright? In fact, almost any time that one person has more power than another person, there is some type of oppression going on. Right? That's simply because people are imperfect. From my world view, everybody's got a sinful nature. Right? Everybody's kind of jacked up. So we're not good at stewarding power. Okay? The way I always put it is, you know, everyone says, if I was the king of the world, everything would be better. And... My, my belief is no, it would probably be way worse, right? If you were king of the world, it would probably be way worse. And that's because we're bad. Humans are bad at stewarding power and authority in general. Does that make sense? Okay. So now that being said, most of these oppressions are relatively minor oppressions, okay? Happens all the time, right? If you're at school and you write a paper, hey, guess what? I graded papers, SAT papers for a long time. I can tell you so much is subjective, So much is subjective, right? When I read an essay, okay, there are technical things that I'm looking for, but it's also just a sense of like how good of a writer do I think, how good of an essay do I think. There's a lot of subjective stuff, right? So guess what? A lot of your grades are not truly reflective of your true excellence, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think, by the way, they they moved to a thing called standardized testing? Right? Because that was so true. Everybody would grade differently, and the colleges had no way to, to like actually have an objective metric. So they all moved to standardized testing. And then what started to happen when standardized testing started to become popular? <laughs> by the Marxist definition, yes. Right? What started to happen is the Asians started to kill everyone. All <laughs> right? Okay. The Asians started to dominate everything. All right? Okay. And <laughs> for sure sure. okay? But the reason, the reason I get that, and now what's happening, now they're taking standardized testing out of all the systems, right? And they're diminishing its, its influence, right? Why? Because as Marxist thought increases, whenever you have discrepancies in the systems, that means there's oppression and injustice, right? If we don't have you know, 20% black, 20% Native American, 20% white, 20%, then there must be some type of systemic oppression that is causing this group to do poorly. Does that make sense? So we've got to harmonize it. Again, they're, they're trying to find equality of outcome. Okay? But the biblical perspective is that you're never going to have equality of outcome. Jesus literally said the poor will be with you always. Right? In the age to come, we're going to have poor people, relatively speaking. Okay? And from God's perspective, that's not injustice. Okay? This is hard. Right? Because in our minds, we think everyone should be completely equal. But that's not how God sees it. That's the whole idea of judgment. That's why we're all going to get a grade, right? And again, that idea is very—you know—it's hard to 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 wrestle with if we've been influenced by a lot of this worldview. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, are we talking about from the world's perspective, or from God's perspective? I assume God's perspective. Yes. Yes. So I would say, I would say simply, this simply on, on the issue of judgment, okay? I think, number one, I think God does take our situation into account, right? He understands that for some people, it's a much more faithful decision. Like, let's talk about fasting, right? Some people have a real grace to fast in this season of their life, and God might put an expectation of, hey, I want you to do, like, a juice fast. Somebody else may not have any grace for fasting. They have very little faith. So for them to say, like, God, I'm going to, like, fast lunches on Mondays, right, Like, that might be a greater act of faith, right? We don't know, okay? And God judges by our, he judges knowing our hearts. And I say that as a father, I do that with my kids too, right? Like, Eden, my daughter, is an amazing artist, right? She likes to draw, she's good at it, okay? I suck at art, okay? And my son is not good. If I said, hey, you both have to draw like, pictures today, right? Eden would rattle that thing off. She'd be done in five minutes and it'd be over, right? And Judah would be like, <sighs> you know, he'd be like crying, all this kind of stuff, right? I have to tailor my expectations to where they are, right? And I have to judge them knowing where they are. So I think God does do that with us, number one, okay? But number two, there is also a thing of generational blessing and curses, meaning all of us, inherit blessings and curses from our parents. And from God's perspective, that's right. Why? Because he gives commands that our parents are to pass down blessings. Does that make sense? So he sees us as a people group who's united. So in every way that we've gained from the blessing of our parents, we've also suffered from the curses of our parents by their sin and stuff like that. Okay. And God, from God's perspective, it's a generational family tree and they're all they all share responsibility in some ways, okay? And I know this is a little weird for us cuz we tend to think of like western individualism and stuff like that. But from from the Bible's perspective, it's much more corporate meaning we have responsibility for one another, right? We have responsibility to learn from our parents, right? And our parents have responsibility to teach us. And if they don't do that, then there's going to be negative consequences. God does not want those negative consequences, but he respects our decisions as people. Okay, he allows our decisions. In fact, when we get into race stuff tomorrow, that's exactly what we're gonna go into a lot of. Okay, okay. Any the questions about any of this? Yes. I just think that some people will be far richer than others. You know, I think by our standards today, everyone I think will be fabulously wealthy. Okay, but by the standards of the next age, some will be relatively poor and some will be, you know, if you rule over 10 planets and this guy is, has a nice house. That's a pretty big discrepancy in wealth there, you know what I mean? Um, So, yeah, by that standard, some will will be relatively poor. Mm -hmm. Okay, any other questions? Then we'll move into liberation theology a little bit. Okay? All right, now, liberation theology is very trendy right now. Okay? It's a type of theology that was developed in Latin America, all right? And, um, you know, like the Pope, the current Pope today is a liberation theologian, all right? Just so you know, the last Pope was the strongest apologist against liberation theology meaning he was the biggest fighter of liberation theology in the catholic church the new pope is a liberation theologian what do you think happened there right i'll tell you there's a civil war in the catholic church and the liberation theologians won okay but what you have to understand is this is this is it's a, it's a major this is one of the major battles in the church today. So for example, when I was younger, most of the pastors in my region, they went to Fuller, right? Fuller was called America Seminary because it trained more of America's pastors than almost any other seminary in that generation. But what started to happen was Fuller started to get more and more into liberation theology especially, and so today I don't recommend people go to go to Fuller, right? And um, that's because this is so influential. If you go to Duke, if you go to any of these, like, very prestigious seminaries, almost all of them have a lot of liberation theology in them now, okay? So it's actually very important that you understand, because if you haven't run into this stuff yet, you are going to run into this stuff eventually, okay? It's very trendy. It is, like, the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't know if you go, Southern Baptist Convention is the largest, you know, evangelical denomination in America today. They have been in the middle of a civil war over the issue of critical race theory, which has to do with liberation theology, right? It's been all about this kind of stuff, all right? And the current president is kind of the moderate choice, meaning he's very open to some of this stuff. And the hardline guys like Al Mohler, if you listen to um, his podcast, right? He's like the guy that did not win. The conservatives did not win that. And so there's, but there's this ongoing battle within the Southern Baptist Convention. On high level Christian circles, this is the issue. Okay this is the issue all right so you have to understand this kind of stuff okay point number 1 of liberation theology is that god is on the side of the poor and the oppressed okay god is on the side of the poor and the oppressed and the way a liberation theologian will read the bible is something like this you know god saw the slave people right and he had mercy on them and he saw that they were being oppressed by the egyptians and so he said, "I am the God of the Israelites and I will come and rescue them and deliver them and bless them." All right? And then what started to happen is the Israelites started to become oppressors themselves and they started to become evil. And so God judged them and sent them into exile, right? And then Jesus came, right? Because Israel had gotten into all this oppressive stuff and he was trying to show them the real way to live as somebody who loves the oppressed and the marginalized, right? And that's who Jesus is. He's the one who teaches us how to love the oppressed people in our in our world, okay? That's a basic summary of liberation theology, okay? And the thing is, you can read the Bible that way to some degree, right? There are elements of truth to that, right? The scriptures do say that the gospel is good news to the poor, right? But you want to understand why it says that. If you don't understand why, you're going to be very open to all of this kind of stuff, okay? So here's the truth. God is on the side of the faith-filled who he will reward in eternity, God is not on the side of people just because they're poor and oppressed, okay? In fact, like I said, a lot of times, God gives people over to judgment because of their sin, right? And it is true, it is true that God is very merciful. When he sees people suffering, right, he naturally wants to help them. Guess what? That's like all of us, right? You see people suffering, you want to help them, right? That is understandable, But the idea that God is always on the side of the press, like that's the way he determines whether to be on one person's side or another, that is not a biblical concept. Simply put, it's not a biblical concept, all right? We see many times, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Can I just tell you, Nebuchadnezzar was not what we would think of as a righteous man, all right? All right, the dude was almost certainly a power-hungry tyrant by today's standards and a megalomaniac, and he conquered and enslaved lots of peoples all around the world, right? By today's standards, he was a brutal dictator, okay? But God calls him my servant. By the way, it's pretty much the same thing for, like, King David, right? Like, if King David were analyzed by today's standards, he would be a brutal, you know, evil dictator, okay? And that's because God's standards are not our 21st century standards, all right? there's this understanding, and because a lot of this gets in because so much of the church has embraced humanistic theology, right? This whole idea like God is love, right? God is love. He loves people. Yes, and he's also judgment, right? And he's also harsh sometimes, right? Like that's equally true. And the problem is if we just minimize all the harsh parts of God, then all of this Marxist stuff will sound very compelling to us right? Because it's like, yeah, God cares about the oppressed. He cares about the marginalized. Is that true? Of course it is. Of course he cares about them. But if they don't repent, then they won't, then he won't help them, right? That's, that's hard. That's hard. He calls for repentance. And when people refuse this repentance, then they, then they're judged, okay? Now, to be clear, you know, it's hard because I don't want to overemphasize either side, Does that make sense? He's both kind and severe. That's what Romans 10 says. Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. All right. All right. So, Marxists will say, you know, or liberation theologians will say, the gospel is good news to the poor, right? The gospel is good news to the poor. And yes, that is true, but you have to understand why. And it's because God shows no favoritism for the rich, and riches in this life are a hindrance to receiving the gospel. Okay. Scripture warns us that if we have lots of money, it will be very difficult. to follow God. Why? Because we actually think our money's valuable. That's the problem, right? That's the problem. We think our money's so valuable that we're not willing to trust him with it. From God's perspective, it's like, it's like the equivalent. You know how my kids, you know, weigh their riches in bags of candy, all right? Like if their bag of candy is huge, they're like, I'm rich, Right? You know, and now they know, but they didn't know before, right? I could give them like a $120 bill, right? And they could have like so many bags of candy, right? But they don't understand those things, right? They just understand a huge bag of candy. That's like us with our money, right? It's so valuable. So I can't trust God. I can't share all this kind of stuff. It's the same kind of thing. And so so that's why the Bible warns us about this, right? It says this in, I think this is James 5, yeah. Now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Time out. What's it talking about? It's talking about on the day of judgment, right? On the day of judgment, right? Your wealth will have rotted, right? It, you, won't, you won't have any wealth, Right? The moths will eat in your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Okay? So the reason why I picked the scripture is because that first part Liberation theologians will quote all day long. You will hear James 5 and and, you know Isaiah 58. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen, right? To loose the bonds of oppression. You will hear those two passages quoted in every liberation theology sermon ever, right? But I wanted to finish, right? You have to read the next part, right? The next part is: be patient, wait for the salvation of the Lord. He will make all things right on the day of judgment, right? And what happens if you don't be patient? Then you will be judged, right? So the war is warning the poor oppressed people too, right? If you if you don't stand firm in faith, you will be judged too. Do you understand? It's not about whether you're poor or not poor. It's about whether you're sinful or not sinful. That's the issue, right? And that's what the Bible's gonna say over and over again. That is the biblical worldview, all right? And the last point I'm gonna make on liberation theology is that Christians have a duty to help the poor. Of course, right? We all believe this as Christians. We have a duty to help the poor, okay? But there's a reason why we as evangelicals help them, okay? We help them, number one, because we love them, but it's also because we're trying to impart the gospel to them, okay? And here's the idea. If I give a a meal or a blanket, which I do all the time, by the way, okay? If I give a meal or a blanket, that is a blessing, but the worth of that blessing cannot compare, right, to them getting saved. Them getting saved is a far greater blessing than them receiving meals and clothes. Does that make sense? So the, the proper philosophy is that we should do both, right? Like, we should give them the meal and the blanket because we love them and care for them, but also because we want them to receive the gospel. And the gospel is the greater treasure and the greater gift, Does this make sense? The reason why this is important is because, have you guys studied the student volunteer missions movement yet? Okay? The student volunteer missions movement was a mission movement among young people. What killed it? Well, I'll tell you what killed it. Liberation theology. All right? Liberation theology killed the student volunteer missions movement. All right? And it was this idea that, you know, why do we have to focus on converting the heathen? Like, why can't we just love people? Right? Why can't we just love people... And care for them. And isn't it kind of colonialistic and oppressive to come in with our white savior complex and try and save them and convert them to our religion? Does that make sense? That is that's a Marxist worldview. That's not a biblical worldview. But that became very influential in the seminaries, okay? Now at that time, they didn't call it liberation theology, okay? That was just more liberal theology, okay? Liberation theology wasn't really coined until like the 70s and stuff like that. But my point is this stuff kills Christian movements. Okay, it's probably killed your denomination. Do you know what, what your church's denomination used to be? I don't know, right? These days, but I can tell you, PCUSA, the largest Presbyterian denomination, they fully embrace a lot of this, and it killed them, right? United Methodists, they're in a the civil war right now, but the liberals have won in America. Okay, like this is happening to every major seminary is going through this right now, right? So what I'm telling you is that if you haven't faced this stuff yet, you're gonna face it. All right. And what I'm telling you is that you have to reconcile these biblical beliefs, okay? Because I understand you guys are growing up in a, in a in a cultural context where you're seeing stuff on Facebook and Instagram, you're hearing stuff on the news, you're getting all of this data and influence from all these kind of places. And then you go to church and you hear like a 30-minute sermon, and literally that's the only place that you can hear stuff like this. And now most of the churches won't address any of it. Does that make sense? So how do you get this biblical worldview? It's very difficult because most of the time, most churches have adopted the philosophy, hey, we're trying to save people, so we don't want to say anything offensive to them, right? So they don't preach on potentially offensive parts of the Bible. But the problem is, then what happens is Christians are discipled, not understanding those offensive parts of the Bible. And then what happens, is that leaves them wide open to all of this humanistic and Marxist thinking. So when these young people who are raised at the church go to college, 75% of them leave the faith now. Does this make sense? That's why I'm trying to say you have to, you need worldview. you need to understand the worldview of the Bible. and if we understand the, the overall worldview, then these commands make a little bit more sense, but they do challenge popular morality today. Make sense? Okay. let me pause there. Any questions if we yes? Yes. Well, look, the, the fact that you're here <laughs> look because contend is one of those ministries that if you don't have a biblical worldview or large pieces of it, you would never come here, right? Like the whole idea that we're going to engage in spiritual warfare in intercession for the nations, right, to cast out demonic powers, all of this is like biblical worldview, right, in a way that many Christians that you probably know would be like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, most Christians that you probably know have an appreciation for like, hey, yeah, you're you're joining a ministry to go out and feed homeless people? That's amazing, right? That's cool, right? But if you're going out to do a life siege at an abortion clinic, they're like, dude, isn't, isn't Jesus about love? Aren't we supposed to love people? And you're like, yeah, I'm trying to love the baby here, right? But you understand, that's most of the church at this point most of the church has really embraced huge aspects of humanistic theology, which is why they don't understand all those passages. They don't know why Paul says, hey, you know, the freed man is Christ's slave. Like, if you can get your freedom, do it, but don't worry too much about it. They're like, what? Right? Why would Paul say that? Right? That seems like he's condoning slavery. Right? Why would Paul, you know, tell women, you know, to... Love their husbands and obey them and everything, right? Why would he tell slaves to obey their harsh masters? Why would it say that homosexuality, if you practice homosexuality, you won't inherit the kingdom of God? Why would it say all this kind of stuff? And most Christians have never seriously wrestled with those things and found satisfactory answers, okay? And that's my point. What we have to do is we have to disciple people in a biblical worldview to understand how their worldview differs from the worldview today. Look, if there is no God, then the Marxists might be right. Right? Like, yeah. If there is no God, then we're being oppressed by people, which is true. We don't have a great judge who's going to set all things right. Right? We don't have a great judge who sees all my hidden righteousness. So if I don't cut a few corners and cheat some people and stuff like that to get ahead, I'm the one getting played here. Right? Like, if all of that, if there is no God, then Marxism is, you know a decent worldview, but if there is a God, then all of this, all the stuff that's become so popular today is garbage, all right, and what our job as Christians, it's to tell the world about why it's garbage, right, and that's, and that's part of my problem here today is that, look, it's far more common for young Christians to feel defensive, to be on the defensive in their cultural contexts, right, it's like, it's not like we're sending in well, you know, kids in our youth groups, and they're going into the high schools, and they're like, this is why homosexuality is wrong, right? This is why sleeping with your girlfriend is wrong. This is why they ain't doing that, right? Like, they can't do that. Number one, they don't understand why those things are wrong, right? Number two, they don't have the, the, the completeness of a worldview to be able to challenge the predominant culture on their campuses such that they're the ones who are always on the defensive, right? They're the ones who are like, Oh, you know, like, I mean, it's not just them. It's leaders of the church. It's Carl Lentz, the pastor of one of the biggest churches in America, going on The View and being asked, point blank, is abortion a sin? And him being like, well, you know, we'd like to have a conversation with you about that. And the thing is, everyone knows he's being fake. Like, literally everyone. Because everyone knows at his church they're teaching that abortion is sin, right? But that's where we're at. You know, where even leaders in the church don't have real conviction on these things and so when they're put in these public situations oftentimes they're backing down and a lot of theology is being used to justify it like hey yeah we're supposed to win them with love is did Paul win people with love like that right literally he started riots everywhere he went because what he was saying was so offensive he started riots in Ephesus in Jerusalem and all these places so I'm sorry that's a long answer to your question but yes yes so what, the argument that I'm going to make is that the way we tend to teach evangelism, which is contact evangelism, is very ineffective, okay? There is a place for contact evangelism, all right? But it's not the primary place of the believer, okay? The primary place of the believer... <sighs> all right, I'm going to try and do this in five minutes, okay? As best I can. We have to understand there are seasons of reaping and sowing, okay? So for example, um, in John 4, right, Jesus goes and talks, goes to a Samaritan village. Right? And he talks to the woman at the well, right? And she goes and she starts telling everyone about him, and the whole village comes out and they start believing in him. Okay. And Jesus tells his disciples, Do you not say there's form as to the harvest, right? But I say to you, lift up your eyes and look, the fields are ripe for harvest. Okay. And what what he's pointing out to them is that the Samaritans are ripe for harvest. That was not in their that was not in their paradigm. Their paradigm was that the Samaritans are, you know, lost heretics, essentially. Okay. But he was like, no, you have to see where the fields are ripe for harvest, and then you go and you reap there, okay? And um, Francis Chan preached a sermon about this not that long ago, where he went to, like, Malaysia, and he started praying for people, and they started getting healed, and he was starting, he was, like, blown away. He's like, literally, this has never happened to me in my whole life, right? I've laid hands on people to get healed. They've never been healed, but all of a sudden, here I am, and all these people are starting to get healed, right? Right? Is that just because Francis Chan like went on a really good fast, right? Or like, you know, he was really holy that day? No, it's because the fields are ripe for harvest there, okay? Meaning we have to understand where the Spirit of the Lord is calling us to sow and where he's calling us to reap. In some places and sometimes, the primary calling is going to be for reaping But in most cases, the the primary calling is for sowing. And my, my point here is this. If you look in Israel's history, you're going to see that there's many times that the nations becomes hardened towards the Lord. Okay? When they become hardened towards the Lord, what's happening? The prophets are standing firm, and what are they doing? They're declaring unpopular truths. Okay? And they're being persecuted for it. All right. They're being persecuted for it, but what they're doing is they're staying faithful and they're discipling, like Jeremiah's leading a school of the prophets, Elijah's leading a school of the prophets, right? They're discipling a small group and they're weathering through the storm, understanding that there will become a season to reap. Okay? But it's not primarily then. All right. And so my general advice on this is: look, number one, we need to send missionaries to where the harvests are ripe. Okay? generally speaking, that's not America. Okay. But the church has to be sending missionaries to the places in the world where the harvest is ripe today. Okay. Number two, the church has to be training people on how to sow effectively in the season for sowing. All right. Guess what? That's like what contend is right? Contend is a ministry where we train people to intercede and to stand firm on the doctrines of the faith, right? And to understand right things so that they can weather the storm that we're in right now. There will be a season for reaping in America. All right. And when that season comes, that's what we call revival. Then we're, it, we all must become evangelists at that time, right? We all jump into evangelism. Okay. And that's because the, the fields are ripe for harvest. Okay. But generally speaking, I think what we have to focus on is understanding that we've got to disciple culture. We have to fight for cultural truths, right? And that's the part that I'm telling you is not well understood in the church, right? You see, for example, you see Elisha. He gets sent to Israel, and what does he do? He tells them that they are, they're committing sin by not worshiping Jerusalem. That's a very—you have to understand, for that context, that was like the most unpopular thing you could have said. But the, it was the Lord telling them that right? The Lord was telling them, rebuking them for not worshiping in Jerusalem as they were commanded to do in the law of Moses. And the prophet is going and declaring that to them, and most people are not listening to him, right? Most people are not listening to him. That, what he preached was very politically controversial in his time, okay? But he was preaching it clearly because it was from the Lord, all right? And what I'm getting at here is that the church has to preach controversial truth, all right? That is... That is what it means to be light and salt. Jesus was persecuted because of the controversial truths that he preached in his day. He wasn't, he wasn't persecuted for the non-controversial truths. He was preached for the ones that were controversial because those are the ones that shift the belief systems of the nations. Does that make sense? Right? And that's why I say something like homosexuality, it is imperative that we get understanding on this. We understand it ourselves and then we begin to be able to preach it because what we have to do is shift our culture right? For, I can tell you, I've met so many people where the issue of homosexuality was the deal breaker for them. They're like, hey, I can, God seems good. A lot of what you do seems good. I just can't get past this thing that God hates homosexuals, right? By the way, I don't believe he hates homosexuals, right? But that was their paradigm, right? That is a huge stumbling block for so many people in our generation, right? To me, it is inexcusable that the church is not effectively training or talking about this or preaching or equipping people to understand these types of things. Because that's where people's faith... peoples It's not because some atheist came and said, hey, you know what? Look at all this biblical archaeological evidence. Jesus probably never rose from the dead, right? That's not where people are falling away from the faith, right? People are falling away from the faith on these controversial issues that the church is not adequately discipling people in, okay? And so... That's why I say we, we have to do a better job on some of those things. And the thing is, we did. How much time do I have? Yeah, I don't have time. I'll close with this, okay, because we're running out of time here. What I was going to try and stick in was Marxist infiltration tra- tactics, right, which is the next uh, seminar, but I don't think we're going to be able to get to it we have to understand about Marxist infiltration is that the, communi- the Soviet Union literally trained agents to try and start communist revolutions all over the world, okay? Their number one priority was killing religion, all right? Their number one priority was silencing and ridiculing people of faith, okay? Because people of faith are the most dangerous things for a Marxist system, okay? Marxism works primarily by indoctrinating youth and then silencing dissenting voices, all right, it uses intimidation, canceling, deplatforming, all this kind of stuff to silence dissenting voices. Why? Because those dissenting voices have the power to stop a communist revolution, right? And the problem is that religion is the primary place where people get real conviction that allows them to speak truth even when they get persecuted for it, okay? Like, this is what George Orwell wrote about. If you've read 1984, right? The state can so manipulate society and truth and everything such that they can get you to believe things that you didn't believe, like you believe the opposite of like a month ago, right? That's how communist systems work. By the way, that is exactly what's going on in our national media right now, right? Do you understand that they're pulling, the the director of the CDC just came out the other day and said, yeah, you know, we hyped up the, the vaccines a little bit too much, right? She literally would have been deplatformed from facebook and twitter and all of those things if she had said that six months ago right but that's what i mean they move in institutional narratives and and people buy it like i have friends where i was saying that hey i think they're i think we're you know hyping these vaccines a little bit too much and i was called like a crazy person and all this kind of stuff right i promise you in a month that's going to be their position right and they're going to see no disconnect there why because the institutional narrative has now shifted does that make sense And that's the power of the state. The power of the state can be very powerful in causing institutional narratives, and the only thing that can stand against that is people that have real conviction and courage. But where do you get real conviction and courage without a faith system? It's very difficult because you have no no basis of absolute right and wrong, right? A faith system is what gives you conviction that even if everybody believes this, I can say that that's wrong, and I can stand on it knowing that God will vindicate me after death. (laughs) Right. If you don't have that faith system, you can't stand against the pressure of the masses trying to force you into, into to uh, accept, you know these these narratives. Does that make sense? And so that's why today it's it's religious people with conviction that are holding back the tide. All right. And you're going to see it's almost overwhelmingly religious people. Right. Even if you look at all the political people are speaking up the vast majority of those who have real conviction are speaking out the loudest. They're all Christian, right? You look at the leaders of Turning Point USA, they're all Christian, right? You look at the leaders of Daily Wire, they're Jews, right? And Christians, right? You look at all of these people who are speaking out into those controversial truths, almost, without exception, almost, they're all Christians. They're speaking out because of their faith, right? And that's, and that's the issue. We have to have a church that has solid conviction again. And um, to do that, I think we have, to, we have to shift some of our priorities in the church. Okay. Let me pause right there. I know that was a lot. Any last minute questions before we break here? Yes. Hmm. are you saying that the harvest is right when Is that what you saying is like Well, there's always a harvest in earth or like Yes. It's a great question. Okay. I would say that, look, what we call revivals, you know, that's, the biblical language is an outpouring of the Spirit. Okay. There's, out, there's lots of little outpourings of the Spirit all over the place. Okay. And then there's big general outpourings of the Spirit. All right. So you can have a land that is pretty, you know, hard, and you can have minor outpourings of the Spirit happening in different seasons, stuff like that. Right. And in those seasons absolutely you should be moving with the Spirit. Right. What I'm trying to warn against. Is this idea that is this paradigm that's totally ignorant of what God's doing in the spiritual realm, and people are just like, oh yeah, we just got to evangelize more, right? And people just go out and they start evangelizing, and I'll tell you because I I played that game as a pastor, and people get so discouraged, and it's like, dude, bearing no fruit, and like, you know, and uh, you have to have a paradigm that understands why it seems like people's hearts are so hardened right? Why? How does this make sense in the plan and the economy of God, right? What should, what should our primary focus as a church be today? And I would argue the primary focus of the church in America really should be on sowing. That's what we see in the Bible, that the biblical prophets give us the template, right? Where they are in intercession, where they're interceding for their nation, where they're standing firm on the issues of righteousness because they weren't honored in their day, but after the judgment came, they become really honored, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, to be super clear, we should always evangelize according to how the Spirit's leading us, okay? And those who are gifted in evangelism, right, should be evangelizing insofar as they have the capacity to evangelize, okay? I'm not trying to discourage anyone from evangelizing. What I'm trying to say is that if our paradigm is based on we just have to get everybody to evangelize more, 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 and that's how we're going to reach the nation, I think we're misunderstanding these spiritual dynamics, okay? I forgot the second part of your question. How to sow, yes. So I would define something in two ways. Number one, it's, it's praying, okay? It's praying and it's standing for controversial truths, okay? And again, I think that's what we see in the biblical model, right? That's what we see the prophets do in the Old Testament. That's really what we see Jesus doing, okay? Because Jesus is a prototype. He's ministering in the context of a hardened nation, but a, an outpouring of the Spirit in the midst of a hardened nation, Right? And you're going to see that he's doing miracles. He's, you know, he, people are coming to truth, but generally speaking, the nation isn't being shifted. Right? And what's going to happen is that he's going to speak some controversial truths that are really going to get him persecuted, such that he's going to be crucified and killed. Yes. Yes. Well, that's a huge part of what I'm going to do, right? Meaning, I'm going to do a class on race issues, right? To understand like these race issues and issues of sexuality. These are two of the most controversial truths that we're going to run into today. Okay? So, yes, we'll cover those in depth, you know, tomorrow. And then if you have extras, we we can talk about separately. Yeah. Yes. Anything else? Okay. All right, Father, I just pray for grace, Lord God, for all these students, Lord. I just pray that everything that was true, Lord, would be like a seed in our hearts and that you would water it by your word. I pray everything that was true, let it be confirmed by the scriptures, Lord God. Bring revelation, bring understanding, Lord God. And Father, we pray for all these students that they would grow up into mature leaders of the faith, Lord God. Father, that would lead many to righteousness, Lord God. That would have rock-solid conviction, Lord, that would have a paradigm of the age to come and a final judgment, Lord God. And Father, that would love the scriptures, Lord God, and fall in love with your commands. We pray for this grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.